Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, our guest is the New York Times bestselling children's author, Mac Burnett, class of 2004. Welcome, Mac. Um, it's great to have you with us here in cyberspace. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, how are you adapting in these very weird times? Uh, you know, it, on, on like the most basic level, like the life of an author is just like mostly a life spent at home, like sort of driving yourself crazy uh so in that way i i think i was ready for it uh but but another big part of it is it, for my job at least is is going around the country visiting schools and reading stories out loud to kids and i miss doing that uh yeah how are you doing as you can see my virtual yeah. background that our listeners can't see I'm, yeah. I'm, on, I'm on campus, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're in our sixth month now of working from home. Yeah. So, um, and you know, I'm I'm 67, so I'm in a vulnerable population, <laughs> and my my wife has had pneumonia twice, so she's in a vulnerable, uh. vulnerable population. So. Um, so we're pretty uh, home, much homebodies these days. Um, yeah. It's looking forward to uh, the day when we can break out of this this little prison of ours. Same here, absolutely. So, Mac, let's let's start from the beginning. What were you like as a child, and what was your favorite children's book or books? Yeah, so so as a kid, I was a big reader as a kid for sure. I grew up. Um, at, at, just surrounded by books. Those were my favorite things that that we owned growing up. Uh, it, it was just me and my mom. And I grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, she read to me out loud all the time. And then also, she just really wanted me to have books around. Um, she bought all of my books at like at garage sales and yard sales. Uh, so it ended up that I, I kind of grew up, I, I was born in 1982, but I grew up with books that were published sort of like the for the generation before me and the generation before that, which actually was really lucky because this was like this great golden age in American picture books. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so Maurice Sendak, Margaret Wise Brown, uh, Arnold Lobel, uh, so the frog and toad stories were huge oh. for me, uh, where yeah. the wild things are, but in the night kitchen was actually my favorite of, of Maurice Sendak's, uh, and, and, uh, Margaret Wise Brown, just all of her books. I, I, I loved so much. Uh, and then my mom never put my picture books away. I think it's really common. Like a lot of parents, uh, are eager to have their kids sort of like graduate out of picture books <laughs> and then uh -huh. put the chapter books on the shelf and, yeah. And say like my kindergartner read a six hundred page novel. <laughs> uh, I think that attitude is probably more common today. But my mom was never like that. So so picture books stayed on the bottom shelf, and then when I started reading chapter books, they went on the shelf above that. 
And sort of my mom was just taking like all of her books and I think putting those into storage and the bookshelf just became gradually mine. Uh, but the picture books always stayed out and I never mm -hmm. stopped reading them. So even when I was in upper elementary or middle school, I would sometimes remember a picture book that I loved and just and, and pull it down and, and start reading it. Um, I was like, I was an only child too, to talk about what I was like as a kid. I was an only child, just me and my mom. She was, she was great. Like we were around each other all the time though. So like she definitely needed <laughs> her privacy at times. And, uh, and, and so I would just sort of spend time in my room reading or arranging my stuffed animals kind of, and talking <laughs> This is sounding sad, but it wasn't <laughs> talking to them and having them talk back to me. And I think that that's actually great training for for a writer, kind of getting to know your own <laughs> voice. But like, you're always just pretending to talk to other people. That's that's like, a, at least for me, that's a big part of the composition. It's just still conversations with myself. And, and I started doing that when I was a kid. So um, tell us how you uh, found your way to Pomona and... Um, and then I've got to ask about your relationship with David Foster Wallace. Um, sure. The, I, I, I know that had to be a, um, an important experience in your life. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Pomona overall was such an important experience in my life. I think it was like the formative experience for me. Uh, but how I, how I got there, I was so... Um, my, my college counselor who, like my high school college counselor, who I really loved, uh, she recommended Pomona to me and I had never heard of Pomona. I grew up in California. I still had never, she was like, you seem like a Pomona kid. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I don't, <laughs> I've never heard of this school. I don't understand it. And, but she kept saying it to me. Like she was so determined. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start reading about this school. And everything that I read, I was like, I, I think that I am a Pomona kid. This, <laughs> and for me, I guess what that means, like there is this, like sort of the combination of, of academic rigor with, and I mean this in the best way, and I'm talking about myself here too, but like sort of attracting oddballs. <laughs> particular people uh yeah I, I i was like i just i was like this this is right that the kind of combination of 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 yeah of of academics and like uh and like a, a west coast outsideriness uh i really i i i so i applied early decision to pomona i was like the more i just did all this research everything i read about it i was like i love this place i this is where I want to go. I applied and then I hadn't even visited. I just knew I wanted to go there. And then the next four years, I, I was so happy. I was absolutely like, it's the geographical space in the world that I feel most attached to for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Um, as for David Foster Wallace, so he, it was weird. I, my, like in between senior year of high school and freshman year of college, I remember I got like as a graduation present uh, a, a Barnes and Noble gift card. And I just went, I was like, I'm going to pick out a book that I've never heard of. That's, that's what I want to do. And I picked up brief interviews with hideous men, just because I thought that the title and the cover were uh, so funny. 
And then that turned out to be the first like experimental literature I had ever read. It really sort of broke my brain. I hadn't felt that, I hadn't felt that relationship to a book where I felt like, wow, I'm, I have to learn how to read this book, how to understand it. I hadn't really felt that since I was a kid. Um, and the book was really important to me. So when he kind of halfway through my time there was on the list of possible professors to take the Roy Disney chair, I, I, I was flipping out. Um, like, I, like when he came to visit, I was an English major and he came to visit and like, he was like, he came out of the bathroom in Crookshank as I was going in and I had no idea it was gonna happen and just like flubbed the encounter and still like, I remember I was like, good luck with your audition. Sorry, I don't, it's not an audition. I don't, and then he was like, don't, I think audition is just the right word for it. I was like, <laughs> I remember that so well. Oh, you yeah, of course. And, and, yeah. Um, but, I was also like, you know, I wanted to be a writer from the time that I was a little kid. And so having this writer that I so admired in this position teaching writing, weirdly, like my first impulse was to not take his class, to not apply, <laughs> because I was terrified that if I applied and got turned down, then that would be the confirmation of that deep fear that I, that I knew somewhere was real, that like, I actually didn't have what it took to be a writer. Uh, and then my mom was like, that's so stupid. Like, what are you thinking? Uh, you have to take advantage of the fact that- this, I like your mom already. She, yeah, that's <laughs> very my mom. Uh, so, so I remember I went, I was like, all right, I'm going to apply. And then like, maybe I can like, I can work the ref a little bit. I'll use the old, the old trick of just like, showing up at office hours to, to, uh, to finesse the situation a little bit. <laughs> so I, 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 went, I went to his office and invited me in and I was like, you know, I was just, uh, just wondering, just, you know, I'm putting together the application. Is there anything I should be paying attention to? And he just like, he just sort of winced. He was like a big <laughs> wincer always. He was always <laughs> wincing. It was like the first wince. He just winced and he was like, I think that the, I think that the application was really clear, uh, <laughs> and it's true. It was. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he was always a clear writer. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, so what? Like, what don't you understand about it? And I was like, oh, I just like, is there anything in particular? I oh no, oh no. You could just feel the nosedive happening. Um, yeah. And and he said he said look like the one thing I would say is is that's that's on there but you should know uh, is is do like proofread this thing five times because if there's any error in it then I'll just use that as, as an excuse to not let you in the class. So luckily my mom is also an excellent <laughs> proofreader so uh, so she was signed up for that immediately. But he asked me then he was like what kind of writing do you want to do and I said I want to write kids books. And, and then he winced again. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, I don't know anything about writing for children. And I said, you know, like, I, I know everything I need to know about talking to kids. I know kids really well. What I, what I need to do, I just need to know how to write. Um, and, and that seemed to hit with him a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I had my mom proofread that thing five times. <laughs> and I got in the class. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So mm-hmm. I took intro to fiction with him and then I did an independent study um, uh, with nonfiction. And then he was one of my, my two uh, senior oral examiners, which was like the most intellectually exhausting two hours of my life. Uh, and, and just sort of, and, and afterwards was sort of a, like an advisor and, and, and somebody who was really helping me figure out how you can exist as a, as a, an actual working writer, which like growing up just never seemed it's, it's all I wanted to do, but it never seemed like a real option. And it, it, in some ways it still doesn't after like working only as a writer for 10 years, it still doesn't. I can't believe I got this job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mac, you knew early on that you wanted to write for children. Why was that? What was that turning point? Yeah, so I I, I worked uh, at a summer camp on my summers off from college. Um, and it was a summer camp that I had actually gone to as a kid in Berkeley, where I grew up in the Bay Area. And it was a sports-themed uh, summer camp. <laughs> you can already tell, I'm, I'm not an athlete, as you can tell from my use of the term sports-themed. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> it was sports themed. Uh, it was a sports summer camp, uh, and I and I don't play sports, uh, and, and so I was put in charge of the four year olds because um, four year olds are also don't terrible sports. at sports. That's right. It was a match made in heaven, uh, and and that's where I first started telling stories out loud to kids. And you know, I, I just like I realized that the kind of stuff that. I'm interested in the kinds of stories that I like, which are, you know, experimental stories, weird stories, stories that ask the reader to do work, that kids were actually much more willing to do that work than adults were, that a lot of abilities that that we cultivate, that we sort of think that we cultivate as adults, as readers, a sort of an openness to new ideas, a bravery when it comes to a, a challenging text, Actually, kids have those, and, and, and we lose it somewhere along the way. And, and if we're lucky, we, we cultivate that again. You hear a lot of artists talk about kids as artists, right? That kids sort of have innately the, the outlook on the world that artists require. But I think that kids also, they sort of, they innately are great readers, great art appreciators. A, a trip to the museum with, with a child can be so eye-opening, right? They, they don't have any of this terror of being wrong, of giving a, a, a dumb interpretation. They'll just stand in front of a painting, tell you what they see and tell you what they think it means. And, and that quality, I think, makes them such excellent readers. And so I said, this is my audience. This is who I want to write for. So um, it's notoriously hard to get a first book published um, in any of any kind, to walk us through your how your your path from Pomona to actually succeeding as an author. Yeah, so there was a there was a book that I would read to my campers at summer camp over and over again called The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales. <laughs> and it was this postmodern take on fairy tales, a really groundbreaking picture book. It was so smart, so funny. And I loved it. And my campers loved it too. 
And I think a lot of the times, you know, we'll say like, there are jokes in there for adults and jokes in there for the kids. And I think we flatter ourselves as adults. Like I was laughing at the same jokes that these kids were. <laughs> and I was laughing at the lowbrow jokes, but they were also laughing at the highbrow jokes. And, hmm. and I was like, man, this is amazing. It, it really, it opened my eyes to how, huh, yeah, how smart kids really were when it came to understanding a, a, a difficult text. So I went back to, to Pomona and I was telling all my friends, I was like, I know what I wanna do. I wanna write picture books. There's this book called The Stinky Cheese Man uh, that, that, I, that I love. Uh, and that was just that was just part of sort of how I I did, like I was like this is why I'm coming to this. And one of my friends who went to Pitzer, she was like, you know, my dad wrote that book, right? And <laughs> I had no idea. I know it was so wild. His name is John Sheska, and it's it's S C I E S Z K A, a Polish name. So I never knew how to pronounce his name. I read that book probably five hundred times. And I would just, I would just always skip John's name. I would be like, this book is by John. By John. By John. By John and Lane Smith. John um, C. John, yeah. And, and Casey, we actually called her Sheska, but I had no idea how to spell her name. I never would have done it that way. Uh, and, and so she said, you know, the next day, she said, I told my dad about your book and he thinks it's really funny. He wants to see it when you're done. Uh, <laughs> And so I got to send my I got to send my first picture book to 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 John Sheska, who was the reason that I I wanted to write a picture book. And and he wrote me back and was like, I love this. I'm gonna send this to my agent. And his agent became my agent. And and that was that was in 2005. That was 15 wow. years ago. Yeah. What book was that? That was called Billy Twitters and His Blue Whale Problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's about a kid who gets a blue whale as a pet, but it's a it's a punishment and it ruins his life. Yeah. <laughs> There's a there's a surprise in the inside cover, I think, of that book. Yeah, can that's you, right. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, so so if you if you lift up the flap um, and you take the jacket off, uh, there are all these old timey advertisements. That's what's on the case, which is that, that's what the the part of the book that's under the jacket is called. It's called the case, and a lot of the time, especially in picture books, the case will have a different image from the jacket. So there, there's a tiny advertisement that says, you can get a free trial of a blue whale. Um, just send us a self-addressed stamped envelope and we will send you a whale in the mail. Uh, and then there was an address that you could write to and, and any kid who saw that read it, decided they wanted a blue whale and decided to send a self-addressed stamped envelope. Um, those envelopes would then get sent from the publisher to me and then they would get a letter back from a Norwegian law firm uh, that said that their whale was, was stuck in Sonjemfjord. Uh, and there's like a customs snafu and, and, and uh, but the, you know, the Norwegian legal system is very slow, but, but lawyers were working around the clock. But meantime, like here's a photograph of your whale and here is a, uh, a phone number where you can leave your whale a voicemail. He'd love to hear from you. And then kids <laughs> will call in and leave phone messages for, for their whales. And they're the, they're the best, they're the best messages. Yeah. So kids are, are headed off to college today, still waiting for their 
for their whale. You know, I mean, Norwegian, the Norwegian legal system really needs to be streamlined. It's, I think it's outrageous, but you know, again, like as an American, I don't want to come down too hard on any other country's system. I just, yeah, I agree. I think I think it's outrageous that these kids well, our don't postal have system whale. has its problems. Too, yeah, no so. kidding. <laughs> um, so you've talked about you know wonder and how children can get there so much more easily than, than yeah. adults. Are, can you still get there? And uh, are, what gets you there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Because I think that like I, the that sort of that 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 willingness to to kind of enter like a playful liminal world where where like the rules of reality are a little warped i think kids kids are great at that like they're great at make believe right like i think that's a great phrase they make themselves believe something they they there's effort involved in in pretending that way and for the kid who uh who wanted to take that risk to send that envelope off. Like I, I wanted to reward that impulse to say like, I, if that kid was willing to reach out and say like, I want to make believe that I wanted to be like, cool, we can make this world, we can flesh out this world a little more. We can, we can play. Um, I think that adults have more trouble getting to that place, but they do get to that place. To some extent we all do, especially when we, that's, it's something art is great for. It's something stories are great for. That that you know we will we will cry about a character that we know is fake um, because our feelings about that character are real. And in fact, like you know, in, in June sixteenth, people from around the world visit Dublin to to retrace the footsteps of Leopold Bloom, a man who never existed. Like. <laughs> People spend real money, get on real planes and walk around a real city to to trace a fictional character because that character means something to us. I think it's harder. Kids can get there so easily. And the way that they interact socially, I think, has a lot of play and make believe in it. And they're just open to seeing what's fresh and new about the world in that way. Adults, I think we kind of need to be knocked off our game a little bit to get to that place. We get our being uncertain, being can feel, we can conflate being uncertain with being dumb, right? If we don't know the answer that that's a referendum on our intelligence, if we don't immediately understand something, that means there's something wrong with the way that we think. And, and so we sort of cling to certainty because it makes the, it makes us feel better about who we are in the world. Um, I, I, I really try to, to live in a place that's, un, that's like, yeah, comfortable with discomfort, with ambiguity, with, with not knowing. Um, but, but I think that art has always been a way that, that, that I can kind of, take a shortcut into that place to, to say like, ah, oh, man, I've never thought of it that way. I've never seen the world through that person's perspective, or I don't understand this, but it's making me feel something. Um, those spaces, those uncertain spaces, that's where change is possible. That's where growth is possible. That's where we can connect with somebody else sort of in the middle, in these liminal spaces. And I think, I, I think we'd be better off 
being comfortable in those uncomfortable places, just like as individuals and and as a as a society, as a culture. You talked about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Is that how you seek to understand how to write for children? Or do you spend a lot of time with them? Or are you writing for your own self as a child? That's a good question. I spend a lot of time talking to kids. And I think that's the motivation for me. It's always been like my first stories were told out loud to kids. I still love talking to kids. They say things to me all the time that just, they just, that blows my mind. I think that's why those four-year-olds were perfect because four-year-olds are so verbal. You can have a conversation with them, but their perspective is so foreign to an adult. It's, it's wild. It's like talking to a space alien, but you're able to have this conversation. <laughs> I, I love talking to kids and their freshness their their openness to big questions, the way they wrestle with huge questions, that's what inspires me. You know, like if you spend any time around kids, you know they ask so many hard questions, huge questions. What is love? What what is life? What happens after we die? These are questions that artists sit down and try to answer uh, too. I think that kids and artists have a lot in common. They're both just trying to understand what it means to be a person in the world. Um, and that feeling of being an adult that's asked a question by a kid and you don't really know how to answer. Oh man, that's wild, right? We're like, uh-oh, I used to wonder the same thing. And then I just decided not to figure it out. And now I'm being exposed. Uh, I think that I am inspired to, to kind of, and, and then not go back and find the answers. I don't have the answers, but, but to say like, I'm wondering the same thing. Here, here are some of the things that I think about when I ask this question. Um, I think that's how I like to approach a book. Uh, and I think that there's, there's comfort in that. There, I, I don't like to teach lessons. I don't feel like I have uh, like a, 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 just a, pile of wisdom to share or, 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 or morals to inscribe on kids' brains. I, I just want to say like, hey, I'm wondering the same stuff you are. This is a wild world. <laughs> yeah. So I, going in, this is, I, I know this is an unanswerable question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I want to hear how, how you, you um, uh, um, tackle it. And that is, how do you go about finding your new ideas for books? Um, and how many of your ideas actually work, uh, become and, you know, work out as books? Um, yeah, I think that it's, it's weird. Ideas come from just, you know, I can't sit down at my desk and come up with an idea. It never works that way. It, 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 like being a writer is just a way of existing in the world, mm -hmm. I think. It's, it's a way of reading. It's a way of watching. It's a way of interacting with other people. I think you're, you have to be aware, not just of the world around you, but of your own attention. The things that make you feel excited or that make you feel angry, the things that you care about, those are the things that you write about. And, and writing, is, writing is a craft that, that you can get good at, but doesn't mean anything until you connect it to something that you're passionate about. Um, and that doesn't even mean in broad terms, like it, it, it could mean like, I love baseball and I'm going to write about baseball. I don't love baseball, by the way. Uh, but it, it can also just be, 
you know, the kinds of jokes that you laugh at, the kinds of things that people do that you find incredibly annoying. Uh, noticing those things, keeping track of them, that is the fodder for writing. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a way of always paying attention. That's the first step. And, and I think the ideas come from there. It comes from, from, just, from just the daily practice of being a noticer, inward and outward. Yeah. That when you write, do you have already a vision of illustrations for your books or does that or what does that collaboration look like? Yeah, so I like to write novels and picture books. I mean, I do write novels and picture books. I I prefer to write picture books. I can't draw, but I think it's so interesting to to write just a piece of what will be the finished whole. Um I think that writing a picture book you know, it has a lot in common with, with playwriting. Um, you're, you're just making a structure uh, for a number of other collaborators to come in and, and make the thing real. Uh, and so I'll have an idea for, for maybe like an illustrative mood in my head, but mainly what I'm trying to do is, is leave big spaces, uh, to leave spaces in my story for an illustrator to come in and to tell the story, to decide what a character looks like or what the room in the house looks like or even what's happening in the background or, or what emotions that character is feeling when a certain thing is happening. There's a lot of information that if I were writing a novel, I would include in a manuscript that when I'm writing a picture book, you're deliberately leaving out. Um, then an illustrator comes in and fills in some of those stories. Uh, sorry, an illustrator comes in and fills in some of those gaps. Um, but then an adult will come in who will read the story out loud because that's one of the weird things about picture books is they're not read by kids. They're, they're mostly read to kids. And, you know, if you've read a picture book out loud to a kid, you know that there are a million different ways to do it. Maybe you choose to have, like, fun voices for the characters. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable and you don't do that. Maybe... Uh, you like to take a break and 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 talk about what you see in the picture. Maybe you just plow through with the text. Maybe you think of a joke that isn't in the text, but you just add that in there and it gets a laugh. Thank you. You're making me, the author, look good when you do that. Uh, the adult who reads the story out loud is making an interpretation too. And finally, if a, if a book is really good, there are, there are still gaps in it, still holes, still things left to figure out for the the kid who's listening to the story to come in and make an interpretation of their own. Um, and so it's this, it's this process of, of, of reinterpretation that's so exciting to, to write words that are interpreted by an artist that are then interpreted by an adult who's adding voices and movements and facial expressions and then interpreted by a kid who's taking this all in. Um, it, it's, it's a really magical process that way and, and there's nothing like it. Uh, in in a lot of cases, um, authors and illustrators, you know, don't even know each other or talk to each other. That's they're, right. They're, they're connected just through a publisher, and maybe they, maybe you know an editor working with the writer and a an art director working with a an illustrator. Um, in your most recent books, you you've worked with uh, one illustrator, John Classen. And uh, it's a it's a really effective collaboration. Uh, I'll I'll reveal here my my I have a five year old grandson and Mac is his favorite author, 
Um, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that collaboration? Uh, is 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 it a collaboration or is it two separate paths? No, you're right, Mark. When 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 you make a picture book with an illustrator, if you're just writing the words, uh, what you end up selling to the publisher is usually just a manuscript. There's not an artist attached. Uh, there's not an artist attached, and then uh, the publisher will usually assign you an artist. And if you're lucky, you might get to see sketches, but it's very common for an author not to see the artwork until it's all finished. Um, mm -hmm. And during the process, the author and illustrator are not supposed to talk to each other. Um, but but John and I were friends before we started making books together and, and we grew up uh, loving the same books. And I think we're similar in a lot of ways and probably different in just enough ways to make the partnership really work. Uh, and so the first time we made a book, a book called Extra Yarn, we sort of, we were sneaking behind the editor's back and, and talking all the time about, <laughs> about making this thing. <laughs> then the secret sort of got out. Uh, and so now we do, it, it is a real collaborate. We talk all the time when we're working on a book and, and um, he has influence over the words. I have influence over the pictures. It's really unusual. Uh, and, and even other illustrators I'm, who, I might be in touch with during the process. It's it's not like it's not like with John. Uh, we every book for us is a little bit different, but but every book I think is sort of a document of our friendship too. And I think that that it's integral to the way that those books come out. And they're very they're those are very special books to me. The ones that I've made with John. If someone would have told you twenty years ago as an incoming student at Pomona, that your books would be translated into more than 30 languages and sell more than 2 million copies worldwide. Yeah. What would, what would Mac have said? I, I like coming into Pomona, I didn't even have any conception of, of like <laughs> what it can mean to, to be a person like who had a life in like the arts or the humanities in some way. Like my mom, my mom was a nurse she dated pretty much like exclusively firefighters. Uh, and like, that was, that was what I knew. Uh, I remember I had like, I uh, had a lunch with my advisor, uh, like the intro lunch with my faculty advisor who is an English professor named Dan Burkholz. And he was a younger professor. And like, I, I don't know who I expected to be teaching me in English, but I was just sort of flabbergasted that there were like, that there were adult, like, I was like, you're just, you, he was a medievalist. And I was like, you just read like medieval literature and think about it for a li living, but you don't have like a giant beard that like an owl lives in. You're just a, like a normal, cool guy. <laughs> this is unreal. This is unreal. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was so eye-opening to me. Uh, like if you ask me just like what I would think of that as I was entering Pomona, I, I, I just, I wouldn't even believe you. There's no way. I didn't, I didn't have my eyes open to, to, to sort of all the possibilities that, <laughs> that were in front of somebody. I, 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 yeah. So we're getting close to the end here. Um, we've got to ask you about your next book. Um, what are you working on? What can you tell us about what you're working on? I, yeah. You know. So, so during quarantine, uh, it was there. It was really it was wild. So the week before, uh, 
the Bay Area shut down and a lot of the country did. So that, so uh, like the second week in March, I was in Central California doing school visits like I normally do. I was talking to, you know, a thousand kids a day in a gymnasium, reading books out loud to them. Like we knew COVID was coming. We had no idea what it really meant. Like we had no idea that really it was already here. Uh, I came back up to the Bay Area where I live uh, on a Friday. That Saturday, school in the Bay Area was canceled. That Sunday, word was going out that school was going to be canceled across the country in so many school districts. Um, and so on that Sunday, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go on to Instagram and I am going to read books out loud. And I'm just going to do this every day during quarantine until we run out of books. And by then, I'm sure COVID will be over. That didn't work out that way. I ran out of books. You have to go into reruns. We did. I, I, we are now in reruns. I read some other people's books, like sort of like pushing at the edges of copyright law. I, I'm like reading my books again for like the fourth time. I have this moment where we sort of reached the end again. And, and it's like, it's called Max Book Club Show. And there's like, just it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's a show, but I'm like in a chair in my office. But like, I'm just talking out into the void. And when we were like round in the corner again of starting out with Billy Twitters, I, was just, I had this moment where like, I feel like I was going to lose it. Like I was losing it live where I was just like, and what are we doing? Will we just go through and read all of my books in a circle forever? Maybe. Um, but uh, you're not writing them fast enough. Oh, I, that is true. That is true. Uh, but one thing that came out of that, we did this weird thing. A friend of mine, since I was since I was a kid, since we were eight, we were friends together. Uh, he he's an illustrator, an artist, and like as a segment on the book club show, I was like, what if we do a live cartoon? Like, what if like on Zoom, like you move your camera across a piece of paper and we just do like voices and sound effects and stuff. And so we ended up every Saturday for 12 weeks on Zoom, like recording a live cartoon and it's called The First Cat in Space Ate Pizza. It's a sci-fi epic. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, it's the, it was the weirdest thing. It's just like, it's just him doing basically paper puppetry while we do voices in Zoom. Uh, and really like my memory of the first three months of, or four months, I guess, no, three. <laughs> Division's not my strong suit. <laughs> it's, just, it's just making these cartoons. So we're, we're actually, we're making, we're making a graphic novel uh, of the first cat in space ate pizza. And that's what we're working on now. Uh, we are adapting, we are adapting the, the live cartoon classic, uh, <laughs> the world's first and only live cartoon into a into a comic um and so so that is what i'm working on right now yeah i'm gonna look that up yeah check it out yeah, yeah they're all up on youtube now yeah yeah um so yeah it so was... if people want to find them they they just need to to um type your name into uh if they type YouTube in search? the first cat in space a pizza <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're the only hit. It's all related. And you know, so yeah, I mean they're all on Instagram too, but like Instagram, it's so weird. Like Instagram was the worst platform to do a weekly read aloud for. It's just the one I ended up using. But like everything just gets buried so deep in this thing. Just put it into YouTube. 
Yeah, uh, and and yeah, you, you can check them out. And where can readers find your books? I uh, you can find my books at at any at any bookshop. Uh, I mean, that's where I always encourage people to to buy books uh, at their local bookshop if they can. Um, of course, if you can't buy books, you can find them at the library. That's where I read books all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, especially right now, I think we're thinking about like the businesses we we support right now, like that's the world we're gonna emerge into, right? Those are the neighborhoods that when we go outside again, uh, we we need to think about the neighborhoods we wanna walk around in, the, the places we wanna live. So support your bookstores, support your libraries, that's where that's where I say find my books. So on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with author Matt Barnett, uh, class of uh, 2004. Thanks, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. It was great to sort of uh, visit campus back in my mind, and then also Patty in your background. That's right. <laughs> and it was great to chat chat with you from your closet. Yeah, thank you. From your closet studio. Expose me. You expose me. Oh no. <laughs> but the quality of the audio is the audio is great. Fantastic. I'm glad. Well, I've just been trying to figure out what that thing is that's hanging right this by is, your yeah, ear. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a really this is like a I know it's like a shrouded ghost sort of that was the uninvited guest in our podcast. Uh, yeah. It's the next character in his books. That's right. <laughs> and to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast at Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.